HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Kiva, a Greenhorns partner and nonprofit that has helped hundreds of farmers raise over $2 million in microloans, all without charging any interest or fees. Find out more at us.kiva.org slash greenhorns. This is Michael Harlan Turkel, host of The Food Scene. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. For Young Farmers by Young Farmers. I'm your host, Severin. And today on the show, we have Theo Wadman from Helios Farms. And I'm very happy and I welcome you, Theo. Thank you. I'm very glad to be on the show today. And um, maybe you could just explain yourself as a gray haired greenhorn. Um, how did you find yourself making this decision? Would you give us a little backstory on how you came into starting a new farm? Yeah, um, I grew up on a farm uh, in Silverton, Oregon, um, and I did a lot of agricultural jobs, and uh, uh, I worked my way through college, actually, um, driving farm equipment, and my parents would ask me what I was learning out in the fields, and I'd say, well, I'm learning that I don't want to be a farmer, and uh, so I... I, um, I said that early on, and I think I was reacting to the kind of corporate model that I was in because I was working for food, big food processing companies and farmers that were um, were you know involved with heavy equipment and um, and then uh, life you know went on for me. I got a degree in engineering physics, and I started a translation and software. Uh, localization company, um, and I sold that company in the 90s, and during those decades, uh, I raised a family, and we had some really serious health issues in the um, family with our kids, and uh, went through an interesting um, kind of cancer treatment uh, with one of my sons that uh, pulled us into an alternative uh, doctor down in uh, 
Houston, and then, and we spent like a decade um, being activists for this doctor while the FDA was trying to close them down, and um, and he was curing this my son had a brain tumor, and he was curing lots of kids with brain tumors, and so my postgraduate uh, education was kind of in the health field and uh, um, what's going on in in U.S. health uh, from especially you know in that in case of rare conditions like that and. Uh, it was uh, so I, I became pretty skeptical about um, centralization overall. So I think uh, my uh, feeling was that uh, the more centralized things get, the more corrupt they get. And so we, uh, my wife Kira, had uh, health issues that were related to diet, and um, she's you know classically gluten intolerant and. Uh, lactose intolerant since she was born um, and along the way we uh, um, somebody said you know you, you can drink raw milk and she said, she said really and so we bought some raw milk and uh, and we she tried it and for the first time in her life she could have milk and she could have ice cream and all the things that you can make with raw milk and so it kind of got us, you know, doing lots of research, and we ended up saying we were kind of uh, um, spontaneous in lots of things that we do, and so we said, well, let's just get a cow. You know, we both had an agricultural background, and so we started uh, milking a, um, a Jersey cow in our home out of, uh, we had a little bit of land in Corvallis, Oregon, and uh, started sharing the milk with the neighbors, and then we realized, wow, uh, actually... There's so much going on in uh, health kind of misinformation that, um, because it's it's so you know as I, my background was scientific and I um, kind of came to the realization along the way that there's like science by authority where you uh, uh, where you know everything has to be studied and uh, and uh, basically a stamp of approval put on it by authority in order for it to be true. And then there's science by repeatability where somebody comes up to you and says, oh, you know, you can have raw milk if you're lactose intolerant, and you try it, and boom, you realize, wow, I've been immersed in this sea of information, misinformation where somebody along the way could have told me that it wasn't the, um, it wasn't the lactose that was bothering me, it was the processing and the homogenization and the industrialization and centralization of this milk supply that is affecting my health. And so we just became uh, uh, very, uh, through all of that experience, we became advocates of decentralizing the food supply, and we figured the best way that we can uh, contribute to doing that is to do it. (laughs) And so we started this livestock shares farm. Um, called Helios Farms. Um, our mission is to get super healthy food to people that doesn't have any chemicals in it and that uses very old methods. Uh, from uh, we have a raw milk dairy. We raise hogs. We uh, raise chickens, um, producing eggs, and uh, with we don't feed any soy. We've kind of rejected all of the agricultural methods that have been become mainstream in the last 50 years and gone back to grass as the core uh, food for animals and 
the base of this food supply that we're providing people and people who um, sign up for the farm do so as livestock share owners and uh, so that means they purchase shares of our animals uh, and then they can come visit the farm and meet their animals and then we they hire us essentially to um, to harvest the food that the animals produce and uh, deliver it to them so it's a really complicated business. I've uh, done several businesses in my life, and this is definitely the one that's uh, that's the most complex. It's pretty, but it's pretty cool and challenging. So. Yes, do you want to talk a little bit about um, navigating the different levels of regulation that exist, and maybe giving some perspective on that? One of the things we've We've had on our radio Heather Retberg before, who works on uh, food sovereignty legislation in the state of Maine, uh-huh. and essentially ensuring the rights of consumer and farmer to do business with one, each- one another directly. Right. Um, and this is obviously an issue that really varies a lot state to state. Um, as a so translator we, um... or as a te- technical writer, you might have some in- good, interesting insights on this. Yeah, we started... Um... And like I said, we started milking um, cows, and in Oregon, um, it's illegal to sell raw milk through a retail outlet, raw cow's milk. Um, you can sell it from your farm, but you're restricted to, to owning three cows and milking two cows. Um, and we pretty rapidly, we, our cows just kind of grew on our land, so we, we had more than three cows pretty fast, and so... We spoke with the Farm to Consumer Legal Defense Group back in uh, Washington, D.C., and uh, worked with Pete Kennedy um, at the time, uh, and he uh, gave us um, some templates, and we started doing a herd share. And we thought, well, this is kind of, you know, a little bit inconvenient to have to do such a, you know, strange way of expanding your business. Um, And then it as we went through it, we, we thought about it, and we said, well, you know, this is actually kind of cool because in order for people to get this uh, access to this food, they have to make a commitment, and they have to sign these really long contracts uh, hiring us to board their animals and buy their animals. And so we worked with Pete and did this, uh, 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 the uh, herd share agreement for our raw milk. And then the uh, bo- and the boarding agreement, um, and then we, having gotten through that, we said, well, let's just do our entire farm like this. So if they want eggs from us, they have to buy a share of our our, our chickens, uh, laying chickens. That's not a regulatory requirement in Oregon um, because you can sell eggs uh, direct from the farm pretty easily. But um, but we want people to make that commitment and say, yeah, I want this food. I want it delivered weekly. I want to be part of this farm. And so we really try to enlist or we, 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 the people that sign up for us uh, enlist and, and get energized around that. The regulations that you're referring to are quite different when your customers own your animals. So when we milk uh, our cows, we're doing it on behalf of the owners of those cows. We're delivering their milk to them. And so there are some states where they're trying to interfere with that contract 
um, contract uh, relationship, but that's that's actually uh, going to be, if that you know the government wants to interfere with that contract relationship, it's going to be a a really an uphill battle. Um, so that kind of so we've structured our farm that in a way that cuts through the regulatory um, complexity. When people uh, bought, purchase a hog from us, they purchase uh, half of a hog, which is the minimum live animal that you can purchase in this way in Oregon. And then they come to the farm, and we actually just uh, are work together to harvest their hog. So when they when they drive away, they're driving away with their meat that they purchased with that was a live animal. And so in Oregon, and I think in many states, um, that kind of relationship uh, cuts through licensing and inspection and lots of uh, things. And so we call ourselves farm share owner certified, um, and that that is the people come here and we talk with them and show them what we are doing and show them our processes and our documentation, and then they they essentially sign up and and they're hiring us to to do things the way that they do it. So they're the, they're the inspectors, you know. You're inspecting your own farm, basically. It's kind of cool. Super cool. And um, from talking to some of the agrarians in the – we have this agrarian lawyer network, and talking to some of these agrarian lawyers and um, especially people from Farm Commons and Next Legal and the Vermont Food and Law Program – and um, FLAG, which is um, Farmers Legal Action Group, and others who are focused on legal approaches and rural crisis hotlines, you know, they'll, they, they talk a lot about how contract law is really fundamental to our notion in the United States of free enterprise and the rights of individuals to do business with one another is, is highly protected. So it seems like it's very strategic what you're doing and it seems like we should um, make sure that all the young agrarians who are listening here uh, learn about this as a powerful tactic for making $8 a gallon as opposed to $11 a hundred weight on their milk. Right, um, yeah. Our our prices are more like $13 a gallon than uh, our... Holy moly. Yeah, and, uh, that, and if, uh, you know, if you go to California, one of our farm share owners was here and said, "Yeah, we were in California, and it was uh, ten ninety nine for a half gallon." So, um, raw milk is uh, done right is um, is valuable, um, and uh, you know the benefits of raw milk are are stunning for people who experience those benefits. If they have a child with asthma or or eczema, and they put them on raw milk, and then in a couple months it's gone, and They've tried so many different things to get that, you know, child in better health, and and all it takes is a little gut um, uh, therapy, essentially. Well, I, you know, it's not really funny, but I was wondering what percentage of the U.S. public are either cancer survivors or cancer families, and you know what a what an incredible market share they must have. And you know how are how are we as young agrarians doing a better job of interacting with the health community, who are there in service of those survivors to help them make good decisions? I just had a conversation today with somebody who 
was having health problems. And, you know, his doctor said, well, only drink one Coca-Cola per day when you have this health problem. And I just thought, wow, there's a missed opportunity for some nutrition learning. Yeah, it's it's interesting because we really take a uh, uh, food-as-thy-medicine approach, and we're, you know, and uh, so we pass on... Um, Stories and information. We don't. We don't claim to own any of it ourselves. But uh, we, you know, when you have a, a family who um, comes for a hog harvest, when, you know, we, well, there's so many stories within our farm share owner community. Um, one of the women uh, who runs one of our drop sites. So we deliver our food through residential drop sites and. Uh, People sign up, and then they say, yeah, I'll, I'll be a drop site, and they have a refrigerator there, and we can drop the milk, and people come and pick it up. And So that's a whole different story, the, the distribution of food in that way. But uh, one of our drop site owners um, has an adopted son that she adopted, uh, and she, he was autistic, and he couldn't eat anything. He, would, he was allergic to so many foods, and they found out he was allergic to soy, which is, uh, you know, ubiquitous in our diet. And so then she was, and he was allergic to eggs, and he would go into shock, you know, if he had these foods. So he had a very limited diet. So she got our milk first, and and he could drink the milk, and he loved it, and, and he had no reaction. And then we were talking with her, and we said, you know, Soy properties can come through in eggs, and so it may be that because all e- eggs, even the best organic eggs, commercially are likely re- fed soy or the people don't pay attention to it, he might be reacting to the soy in the eggs. So she did an experiment where she had his EpiPen there and, and fed him some eggs with the doctor on call and uh, from our farm, and, and he had no reaction, so now that opens up a whole new thing, you know, so now he can have custards and all this stuff um, as long as it's, you know, coming from our farm. And she knows that it's a soy-free diet that the chickens have. There's research in, in out of Eugene, Oregon. There's a, a guy named Ray Pete who uh, researches oils, and he has really good uh, documentation on, you know, when pigs are fed soy, they're so they're Lard becomes soybean oil, which is a, similar to soybean oil, which is an inflammatory oil. And when you know they're on a grass diet, their lard is super healthy and anti-inflammatory. So, you know, we raise Berkshire hogs and we raise them on in a soy-free diet, and and you eat the pork and you just, I mean, you feel great. It's an anti-inflammatory um, food that you're eating, and so it's a uh, you know, it's it's difficult, I think, nowadays because you get to a certain age and you've developed all these habits, like you have a couple Cokes a day, um, all this stuff that you think is okay, and it actually it's, you know, it, it, um, in, in your own body or in your family, it's causing problems. And the, you know, gluten and uh, glyphosate and... Uh, all those things you start researching them, and you realize, wow, this is um, this is kind of scary. And so, our, our farm just rejected all of that 
and uh, we have methods. You know, our tea dip is manuka honey and ascorbic acid for our, our cows. Manuka honey is, you know, one of the most antimicrobial uh, substances on earth, and it, and yet it's, you know, it's just starting to be used in, uh, I guess they have a thing called medi-honey now that they use on wounds. Um, but it, it doesn't carry any of the problems of, you know, the neosporins and the antibiotics that create resistance. Manuka honey just wipes everything bad out, it seems like, and allows good things to thrive, and it's, it's kind of interesting. So um, we use that as our tea dip. We use it as a wound treatment for animals and for people, of course. Um, so I don't know. Um, there's a lot of... Uh, a lot of work, but when you're immersed in the misinformation and it's coming at you from all directions and things that you think are okay uh, are really causing problems and they're subtle, and so you don't really know. Well, I have arthritis, you say, or something like that. You don't realize maybe the arthritis is just a reaction to the milk you're drinking, you know, the quality of the milk. And uh, a couple months of drinking raw milk and while your joints start healing, you know, so... It's uh, interesting. Well, and empowering there? people to tune into what their body is telling them sounds yes. like is another big part of this. You know, actually start listening. Yeah, and it's hard to do if you, um, you know, if you overdo carbs one day, and then two days later you, you know. You, you have a hard time getting out of bed or you're feeling real achy or something like that. It's like, wow, you know, how do you make that connection in your brain that, that something you ate two days ago? Um, it's about habits. It's about practices. It's about doing research and talking to people. And um, Kira's great because she's like, you know, the bellwether of uh, dietary uh, problems. She's not uh, here right now, but she is gluten intolerance, lactose intolerance, all those things that banner thyroid was wiped out along the way um, because of that. And and so the amount of research that we've had to do and then our willingness to, you know, say, okay, you know, on the first year, on the we, we moved from Corvallis um, three years ago. We moved to a 160-acre farm where uh, we you know, started accumulating more cows and uh, started a hog operation right away. And, and, uh, you know, the first winter I had this steer come down with listeriosis, which is uh, also a human uh, problem, but it expresses itself differently. And so I had this um, cow with listeriosis, and he was doing the circling, um, which is the classic symptom. It's called circling disease. And uh, so I, I was able, he was a wild cow, essentially, but I was able to, because he was out of it, blind and circling, he was dying. It was a brain, it's a brain condition for cows. And so I, I took him into the barn and I started uh, giving him high doses of uh, vitamin C. And I just, you know, put it, put it in his mouth and essentially he was walking around in circles and, and then... Uh, Within like two hours, he just he like blinked and looked at me and and it was done. He was fine and he he became the wild steer self again. And 
so we have these methods that we've accumulated along the way of, of uh, the biochemistry, understanding the biochemistry of some of these diseases and how you can address it with, you know, and vitamin C is one of the things that we use a lot of on the farm. And, and that just literally took a cow that would considered fatal by mm, conventional veterinary um, uh, and uh, turned it around, you know, in a couple hours and the, the employees that we have here were just stunned, you know, that, I, that this blind cow was uh, back on its feet and ready to go. <laughs> so I think um, part part of um, part of our mission, too, is is that I like to communicate with people and I like to say, hey, if you um, want to know your farmer, this is who I am, you know, and I'm a little bit crazy and uh, I experiment in these ways with all of this knowledge that I've accumulated in my 57 years and, and uh, I'm not, uh, you know, I'm, we're not afraid to, um, to try something that other people might think is crazy and See how it works because we have a lot of knowledge that um, backs up what we're, uh, you know, what we're trying. So, well, and you are also doing these tests for yourself. I was recently on Lopez Island and learned about their community food safety testing infrastructure, which they see as really critical and kind of preemptive to dealing with any concerns about food safety and, you know, kind of owning the food safety issue ahead of anyone coming along and, and owning it for them. Yeah, so we installed, a, we installed our own uh, lab where we can culture bacteria, and uh, I think we're one of, uh, I don't know how many farms uh, across the nation, but there's like two in Oregon that have an on-farm lab. And uh, so every day we combine our milk from our cows and we test it. And you can get, um, and there's new, it's actually one of the things in the raw milk industry that people don't realize is that about three or four years ago, um, the the testing technology changed so that you can test your milk and in 24 hours have the results. And then that's a lot more rapid than in the past. And so 24 hours later, we, which is about the time we're shipping our bottled milk, um, we can see what our counts are. And I think that um, the most interesting thing, we've been doing it for a year and a half now, I think, or a year almost. Um, and the interesting thing to me was that our raw milk uh, easily passes uh, the food safety standards for pasteurized milk that's sold in the store. And so, you know, our, uh, and I mean, like, we have one-tenth of the bacteria in our raw milk that can be considered safe in pasteurized milk that you buy in the store and uh, or or less sometimes I'm, I'll milk a cow and test uh, when I test an individual cow I can have zero zero colonies uh, which is you know really hard to achieve but it's pretty uh, I guess the lore or the media message around raw milk now currently is wow this is uh, inherently unsafe and inherently dirty, but in fact that's not the truth at all. Because we milk our cows and there's no bacteria there at all. There's no coliform bacteria 
on our coliform slide every day. I mean, it's like um, I would say 99% of the days we see nothing, and that's where you would see E. coli, which is the big scare. And so the, um, the evidence that we see on our farm is in such a high conflict with the media message um, that people get. Now, there is the, the, the uh, times that we do see bacteria usually is attributed to some type of contamination. So if a teat doesn't get cleaned well or um, we, we, we use a can that would, you know, accidentally was sitting around, then that comes out in our test. Um, and uh, I've, I've done tests where I just, you know, take a, one of the slides and open it to the farm air for about 15 minutes and then culture the bacteria, and it's like w- way more bacteria than we see in our, in our milk typically. <laughs> so the farm air, what's floating around, uh, has... And it's bacteria, you know, most of what we see on these slides is not uh, a, even a pathogenic bacteria. So the goal of this testing is to make sure your counts are low, in which case there's a very low chance of any kind of pathogen being there. Um, so that's been a real, um, it's, it, you know, you create processes. We, we, we do what's called single moo milk. And so we, we milk with these uh, surge milkers and Every cow gets its own sterilized can, and then we pour their milk right into sterilized jars and bottle it warm and stick it in the cooler, and and it goes out. So I, I my, you know, um, goal is utter to jar with no contamination, and that's different than the industrial process for milk, and that you know where it goes through pipelines and into a bulk tank, and it's for a day or two until the truck comes by and picks it up and takes it to the fractionization plant and all that. So raw milk coming out of a typical, a large-scale dairy um, along the way from the udder um, to the um, jar, if you had it be, if you didn't pasteurize it, there's too many uh, points where contamination can occur. And it's more, the bacteria seems to be more about contamination in general than it is about the milk coming out of the udder. So where are you? We have, um, we've actually run out of our, oh, we've almost run out of our time. Where are you looking to go next with your business? Where where do you see opportunity? What counsel do you want to pass forward to all of the young agrarians who are listening uh, here? As coming, especially coming from an, having previous success in other sectors, most of our listenership are first career farmers. Um, but it sounds like uh, you're just as frustrated as we are, <laughs> <laughs> even with yeah, experience. Yeah, um, so yeah, like I, I said earlier, and you referred to me as a as a, a gray haired greenhorn. That's that's cool. Um, we, when we started this, I said, you know, uh, I'm 50, I think I was 54 or 55 at the time, and I said, well, you know, I've got another 50 years, so I can, I can either, you know, just think about, uh, I, I've kind of rejected the idea of retirement, and uh, I, I just want to work my ass off until, um, until I die at like 110, so I'm about halfway there, and uh, 
I think if you take that attitude, you have to take that attitude if you're going to be a farmer because uh, the work, uh, I, I listened to one of your other interviews at Goat Dairy and, and the guy uh, at, at some point said, I can't believe how much work <laughs> is involved in doing this dairy. Uh, he was milking, I think, 15 goats or something. And uh, yeah, it's a, it's a lot of work and you have to be willing to hit the ground in the morning and just go 100%. And we're, when you ask what our vision is, well, right now what our vision is is to become financially sound. And um, that means, for me, that means going from producing, right now we're producing 40 um, jars a day of milk and we have to produce 200 jars. And in order to do that, we have to uh, scale up our dairy infrastructure. And we, you know, it to me it's all about buildings, Right now, uh, we're building um, a lot on our farm. So we have three or four different uh, buildings going up um, to make things better. We have, And a lot of that is about bringing people to the farm. So part of what we're building is um, farm share owners stay places where they can come and be involved. Um, and part of that is aligns with our health mission because there's all these studies that show just bringing your infants to the farm and having them exposed to the dander on the farm uh, helps them develop their immunity. And so I think um, our our mission as a farm is to build a, a livestock farm that's functional and financially sound and a livestock shares farm. And then we're, um, we're going to train young farmers and we're going to build partnerships with those farmers and get and be able to basically cookie cutter what we're doing into other areas of Oregon. And that's our goal so that we can develop a bunch of partner farms that are working in the same way that we're working. We have a long way to go. Well, that sounds like some good cookies. I'd like some of them with some raw milk from one cow whose name I know it is on the bottle. And and I feel like what you're what you're talking about is so powerful and coherent um, and and as a lived model, you know, so many young people who are interested in agriculture and are not understanding how they're going to be able to leverage the capital it takes to have the infrastructure that it takes to feed people and you know just the incredible capital requirements to do interesting and good fulfilling and difficult work. This community investment and um, share model represents not just a way to deal with the legal constraints um, of our contemporary food safety context, but also the economic constraints. And the more people are in a community investment model, um, it feels like the more we can have a really accountable and constructive consumer-producer relationship. So thank you. And um, and let's extrapolate from here. Sounds great. Uh, thank everybody for listening, and thanks um, to Theo for speaking, and thanks to everyone for everyoneing. And please, will you know that we have a big, 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 big deal? I've been hunched over my computer all day sending out press releases. Symposium on land access transfer, tenure, commons, public trust and the Asakia system, which is a ditch irrigation system that's been for 400 years 
continuously democratically run in the Southwest, and which has its origins in the Indus Valley and North Africa, but which came to the Southwest with the Spaniards, was adopted in kind of conversation with Anasazi Native Americans, and which continues to flow through ditches in New Mexico for more than 400 years. We're going to learn about many, many things uh, over six days. It's a symposium called Our Land, presented by Agrarian Trust. It's very exciting. And if you know anybody in the Southwest, will you please tell them about it? Because grassroots is our only way to get all the seeds filled to learn as much as we can from all these people who are sitting in planes to get there to dispense their knowledge. If you can't come, it'll be recorded online in uh, audio and video. But it would be wonderful um, for those who are nearby to be able to come and interact. That's Agrarian Trust's Our Land 2, Tracing the Asakia Commons, Six-Day Symposium, November 9th through 17th in New Mexico. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, everybody, and I uh, hope you're making applesauce. Bye-bye. This episode is brought to you by Kiva, a nonprofit that helps farmers grow their businesses by providing access to 0% interest capital up to $10,000, crowdfunded by Kiva's community of 1.5 million supportive lenders around the world. Farmers have a 98% success rate on Kiva, and on average, each farmer's loan is funded by over 140 lenders from Kiva's community. Kiva and the Greenhorns support farmers like Liz of Happy Hollow Farm in Jamestown, Missouri, who borrowed $10,000 to build three high tunnels that extended her growing season. Farmers like Benneth of Mosaic Farm in Shelburne Falls, Massachusetts, who borrowed $10,000 to diversify her crops, cover working capital, and build a website. And of course, farmers like Theo of Helios Farms in Yonkala, Oregon, featured on today's podcast. If you're interested in applying for a Kiva loan, the process is quick and easy. The typical application takes less than an hour to complete and doesn't require uploading any financial statements. To find out more, visit us.kiva.org slash greenhorns. That's us.kiva.org slash greenhorns. Baby.